begin a series that will examine the first of three letters that were written by the Apostle John. Um, John is an interesting character, as we'll find out. The Bible tells us that John was the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved. And he was close to Jesus, probably closer than any other of the disciples um, because of this relationship they had. In fact, if you remember, it was John um, who, along with his brother James, asked for um, the privilege to sit at the right and the left-hand sides of Jesus as he established his kingdom. It's also John who, if you've ever seen the portraits that, that depict the Last Supper, the first person who is leaning on the breast of Jesus Christ is the Apostle John. He was very close to our Lord. And it's interesting and I think important towards our understanding of this letter that we're going to study to realize what type of person that he was. Jesus nicknamed, nicknamed him and his brother the Sons of Thunder. And uh, perhaps because of their boisterous and somewhat quick-tempered temperament. And uh, I wonder if you know, not who you know, but what comes to mind if you think of a boisterous, quick-tempered personality? Some of that can very good. That was real funny. Chuck, that's very funny. Funny, Al. Very funny, Al. Very funny, Al. I'll get it now. Hey, uh, well, seriously. I mean, what, what, no, what character trait? Not who, because I'm sure we could come up with a lot of who's. Um, but uh, what? You know somebody quick-tempered, boisterous? What do you think of? What do you picture? Okay, somebody who's rebellious. Somebody who's obnoxious. Someone who is, uh, what, arrogant? This flies quickly off the handle. Someone who's arrogant, someone who's arrogant, but they believe it's self-confidence. Uh, there's that fine line there, you know what I mean? You've ever, we've ever walked that. Well, I'm just confident. Yeah, you're arrogant. Man, you're there. But, um, you know, you, you picture someone like that. You've got to picture someone who has very little, if any, compassion, who shows no mercy, who is always right, and everyone else is always wrong. I mean, this is the kind of person that he was. In fact, it reminds me, if, if I could ever think of... Uh, I heard a story recently where it reminded me of, of uh, the Apostle John. Apparently there was this country preacher who went to, uh, he would go on a circuit and he'd set up a series of backwoods type of uh, revivals. And he went into this one particular town and he set up this uh, revival and they set up the tent and he was looking for a piano player to volunteer. So the first night he was there, he said, well, can I get a piano player to volunteer? And one guy raised his hand and said, oh, I'll volunteer. He said, oh, that's wonderful. And so as he went through it, he said, okay, if everyone would open in their hymnals and turn to uh, song number 34, we're going to sing song number 34. And the piano player kind of looked at him and goes, I, I don't know song number 34. He was, you know, a compassionate kind of guy. He said, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, if you all turn to Psalm, uh, song number uh, 17, song 17, uh, that one uh, we should all know. And he looked over and he went, I don't know that one either. He goes, well, that's fine, that's fine. He goes, you know, oh, here's one here, hymn number uh, 12, hymn number 12. We've all learned that one since we were kids. Certainly all of us know hymn number 12. And at that point, this, this piano player is real nervous. And he kind of goes, <clears throat> Pastor, <clears throat> I, I, I don't know hymn number 12. And just at that moment, someone in the back of the crowd stood up and yelled, that piano player is an idiot. Now the pastor... Now the, uh, now the pastor, in a, in a, being the compassionate kind of guy that he was, he said, I want whoever said that to stand up and apologize. And there was a silence. No one stood up. A few minutes went by and said, okay, fine. If he's not going to stand up, then I want whoever's sitting beside the person who yelled the piano player's an idiot to stand up and let us know. And uh, obviously, no, nobody stood up. And then finally, after a few more nervous minutes, this one guy stands up in the back and he said, Pastor, 
goes, I'm not the one who called the piano player an idiot. And I'm not sitting next to the one who called the piano player an idiot. What I want to know is, who called that idiot a piano player? <laughs> that, that would be the Apostle John. And uh, for some of us, we will find great deal of encouragement and delight as we begin to understand who this man was. Because James and John, along with their father Zebedee, owned a fishing, owned a fishing business. And uh, they were quite affluent. The Bible tells us that they had servants, which means they were employees, which means that their business was large enough to have people work for them. So they were affluent, yet they were also impulsive because when Jesus came to them and said, Come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, immediately James and John left their father Zebedee and followed him. Impulsively, they just left everything and followed Jesus. So they were impulsive, uh, they were affluent, they were somewhat uh, self-confident, but maybe it was arrogant, but maybe it was more confidence in Jesus Christ as they asked for that request. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, uh, we want to sit at your right and at your left. And you wonder what motivated someone to ask that, but then when you think about the fact that James and John, along with Peter, were part of what was maybe referred to as the inner circle, who had the opportunity, if you look at Matthew 17, and see that James, John, and Peter were invited by our Lord to the Mount of Transfiguration where he displayed his glory, the Shekinah glory of God. So they knew that they were special. And so you wonder if it was just the confidence in Jesus or was it the confidence in themselves or the arrogance or the borderline. But whatever it was, they were were quite an interesting group of people, particularly John. If you've got your Bibles, I find stuff like this. I read this and I have a great time and I just love reading it because it's funny. Um, But in John chapter 20, if you've got your Bibles, open it up. And I want to, you tell me, is this confidence or is this arrogance? It's an interesting account. And obviously it's found in the Gospel of John. So take that into consideration. But yet we realize too that, the, that this particular Gospel was inspired just as all his other writings are. So you know it's, it's God's humor coming out through this. That, uh, we read this, but in John chapter 20, see if you pick up on this. Some of you don't have a chance. But for those of maybe sitting next to you that have a sense of humor... You can explain it throughout this particular session. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now Peter, therefore, went forth and the other disciple, that's John, and they were going to the tomb. And the two of them were running together, and the other disciple, that's John, Ran, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Yeah, you, you see that? Okay, let's keep going. And stooping and looking, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it in a minute. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter, therefore, also came following him. He entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also and saw, and he believed, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Okay, interesting little insight into this person that we know as the Apostle John. Picture this for a moment. They go and they take off. They're running toward the tomb. John's going, all right. He just wants to let everybody know that he got there before Peter. I love that. It's like, I just want to let you know, just for the record, I beat him. I got there first. 
This is great. Hey, call it arrogance, call it confidence, call it what you ever want, but let's record it throughout all of human history that I was faster than him. <laughs> These guys have a great relationship because if you flip ahead to the end here, uh, look, at, um, look at chapter 21. Look at verse 15. This is great. These guys are always going at it. You talk about petty, nitpicky type stuff, man. It makes the stuff going around your house seem like nothing compared to what these guys were doing. And he says that uh, in verse 15, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Well, tend my lamps. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Well, then shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? He was like, Man, why do you keep asking me this? He said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Then tend my sheep. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you don't wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this to him, he said to Peter, Peter, follow me. Peter turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one he also leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, hey, who is the one who betrays you? And he said, Peter, therefore saying to him, to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? <laughs> All right, I'm getting a little tired of this. First, he beats me to the tomb and he has to let everybody know about it. Now, here I am. I'm going to die. Well, what about this guy here? What do you got in store for him? That's the one I always use with my kids. That's my favorite verse. I say, listen to this. Because that's, I mean, think about it. Well, what, what am I, well, why can't, what do I have to do it? What about her? Why can't he do it? Hey, then Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Mind your own stinking business. Don't worry about everybody else. I got it under control. You know, and you read stuff like this, I think it's great. Because here are these two grown men. They're always arguing, always bickering. Not only that, but check this out. They were a little bit callous too. Turn back to Luke for a second. Luke chapter 22. I read this, I go, what in the world... Were these guys thinking? But I sure get encouraged by all this stuff. Luke chapter 22. Let's look at verse 21. During the Passover, the Last Supper, here's the scene. Jesus says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it had been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Okay, they started out by saying, boy, you know what? One of us is going to betray our Lord. Who's it going to be? And they started to discuss it. Then they started to enjoy it. And the discussion led to this dis- dispute. It says, and there rose also at the time a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. I mean, you talk about a callous, it's like, okay, one of you are going to betray me. All right, well, I wonder who it's going to be. By the way, I know it's not going to be me because I'm the greatest one here. <laughs> I know it's not me. Oh, no, you're not the greatest one. I'm the greatest one. And you know what? If you ask him again that question about sitting at his right and his left, I'm going to just punch you out. I'm just getting a little tired of this. You know, you're always kissing up to him and you're trying to get your way. And, and you know, and what makes you think you're the greatest? And so Jesus said to them, hey, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. So he was always teaching these guys what it meant to be great in the kingdom of God. And I read that and I kind of enjoy it because despite all of this stuff, You know, one of the last things our Lord did as he was dying on the cross was he looked at John and he said, Man, behold your mother. 
woman, behold your son. Despite his nitpicky, arrogant, cocky, self-confident, egotistical, self-serving attitude, Jesus looked at him and said, you know what? I'm going to give you the privilege and the responsibility of taking care of my mother. See, you know what's wonderful about that? God sees things in you and I that, frankly, are quite hidden from most of us. We couldn't see them if we tried because we're still looking and we can't find it. But there's something about the character of God who knows everything, who is not confined to time, who is outside of the realm of time since he created time and all of eternity, and he can sit outside of what we are confined to in this dimension that we know as time and space. And he can look at my life and he can say, you know what, I can see where I'm taking you. And I've got confidence in what I'm going to do through you. Man, that's a wonderful thought when you consider the Apostle John. And so as we read this letter in 1 John, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 John, first chapter. If you consider that for a moment... It's exciting to me to realize what a transformation took place in this man's life because of the confidence that Jesus had in what he can do in him. How he could work through him, he had the confidence that he wasn't going to be hung up on all this little petty stuff that had always gone on with these guys. But he could look ahead to the future and he saw where they were going and said, you know what, I'm not going to get hung up on all that. Because I know what work I'm going to accomplish in you. And evidently, John went through a tremendous transformation after he put his faith and trust in the risen Christ. Because this letter is written with sensitivity. It is written subjectively. And any boisterous, quick-tempered person, as you know, has no sensitivity, has no concern for others. And yet this man demonstrates his pastoral abilities and his concern for the people that he writes this to. And he says, you know what? There's a sensitivity, there's a love, there's a compassion that's demonstrated all through his writings that never could have been possible by the old John. He is a great example of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All these old things pass away and behold, everything becomes new. There is hope for all of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ. Don't ever let the world who is around you continue to label you as to what you used to be but because of the grace and the power of Christ in your life, you have become a new person. Now get excited about what God is going to do from that moment forth. Don't ever let people hold you back. Don't ever let them say, you'll never change. You're always the same. What are you trying to do? It'll wear off. Don't believe any of that. You believe the word of God. And so I look at this man and I can believe what God has to say because I see it in the life of this particular apostle named John. And as we go through this, we're going to take a look this morning at five reasons Five reasons to study 1 John. Five reasons to study 1 John. If you don't think these are good reasons, we'll give you your money back. Oh, you didn't pay. Oh, okay. Well, if you don't think these are good reasons, um, you don't have to come back. That's up to you. Anyway, there's two questions we're going to ask. Number one, who are the recipients of the letter? Who, were, they written, who was, were these particular letters written to in their context at the time? And yet, it also carries out an application for us. But the second thing is, what were the reasons that John gives in writing what he wrote? So, who were the recipients, and what were the reasons? That's it. That's all we're going to cover. 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 1. 
says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. We're going to take a look at those four simple verses as they give us an introduction into this particular letter. Um, The first thing, like I said, we're going to look at who were the recipients. Who were the people identified by John throughout this as being those he wrote this to? And um, we'll take a look. Number one, he referred to them as brothers. Now, the New American Standard is referred to as brethren uh, or brothers, and um, I, I think even in the New King James they're referred to as brethren. And the reason for that is in 1 John 3.13, he says, Don't be surprised, my brothers or brethren, if the world hates you. He's referring to the fact that he is writing this letter specifically to those people who have come to a decision on Jesus Christ who believe that he is the Son of God, who believe that he is God in human flesh, who believe that he died for their sins, who believe that he rose from the dead, and have put their faith and trust in that finished work and nothing else. He now categorizes the people he writes to as brothers or sisters in Christ. So this book is primarily written to those who have already come to an understanding of who Christ is. So he's saying that, you know what? And that's why he can say to them, guess what? Don't be surprised, Christians. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. You know, it amazes me sometimes at how many of us get upset when people around us um, have a dislike for us. Not because of the things that we say or do that would cause them to dislike us, but because of who we represent as ambassadors for Christ. See, if, if, if you're living a life of obedience and Jesus Christ is living through you and you become a light to the world, don't be surprised when the darkness hates the light and wants to extinguish it because Jesus said it best. The, wor- the reason the world is lost is because the world loved darkness and he said, I am the light who's come into the world and the light shines on the men and the light shines on their darkness and the darkness hated it and doesn't like the light because it exposes their evil deeds and therefore they put them to death because they wanted to extinguish the light people around us as we're living lives that are being in obedience to the word of god and stand for what god stands for are going to hate us because we reflect upon them the fact that they live in darkness and are alienated from god that's why they killed jesus amazes me how many christians we get so offended when people don't like us we want everybody to like us and he said don't be surprised if they don't fact they killed me they're not going to like you if you're living a life of obedience my big concern is for christians who everybody likes why you better take a good hard look at where you're standing and who you represent because if they like you and everything about you then you're not much use for the kingdom of god so that's what he says don't be surprised so he writes it to christians as a way of encouraging us to realize that guess what it's going we're going to have some problems he also referred to him as friends, and as we go through this, he refers to him as friends, he refers to him as beloved, meaning that he has a relationship with them. In 1 John 3, 2, he says, Dear friends, or dear beloved, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So he has a, an intimate relationship with the people that he's writing to. 
And he says also in 321, 1 John 3.21, he says, Dear friends, if our, heart, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So he's on a real intimate relationship or an intimate basis. And he goes on in 1 John 4, 1, he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Isn't it, it's amazing to me when you consider the transformation that took place in John's life that he would now be on an intimate relationship with anyone. He's saying, look, as a friend, I want to warn you about some things. As a friend, as someone that I'm close to, as someone that I've spent time with, as someone that I've spent time in my ministry with, I want to warn you about false teachers. I want to explain to you that, look, in 1 John 3, 2, what he's saying is I want to explain to you that, you know what, we're not really sure what God's going to do in our life, what we'll become, what he's going to use us for, what he's got in store for the future, but we know this, that he hasn't given up on us. And so can you imagine for a moment the new Christian who is told, listen, you know what, don't, don't be in a hurry to find out what God is going to have you be someday. Live in a life of obedience today, day by day, and you're in the process of becoming what God wants you to become, and that is you'll become more like Jesus Christ. Don't worry about where you're going to be 10 years from now. Just worry about being obedient today. Just living today to please him. And so he's got this intimacy, and probably because, you know, he was the pastor of the local church at Ephesus, and if you read Revelation, the second chapter, it was referring to all the churches that were in Asia Minor. And so John writes his general epistle to circulate to all of those who are in that particular ministry that he has, and just says, look, I want to warn you about some things as friends. We're close, and I feel that that relationship allows me to be able to share these things with you. So here's a man who's developed an intimate style where before he probably couldn't tolerate too many people. And also, he refers throughout this particular letter, and this is important, he refers to his readers as children. He refers to them as Christians, first of all. He refers to them as his friends or someone that he's intimate with. But he also refers to his readers as children. And it's important as we go through this to understand some things. The first word that he uses, and one of the biggest problems, it's fun when we're going through a Bible study, some of the guys that I have in one of my studies the biggest struggle that they have is that everything in, in our Bibles is in English. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And what, do you, what happens whenever, you know, how do we know that child means child or what does child mean? Just like what does love mean if there's four different words that the Greeks use for love? Then we got a problem in defining or distinguishing what word is used in the context as far as what love is God referring to. You know, uh, so wise, love your husbands. Well, is it, is it an erotic love? Is it, uh, is it, what kind of love is he referring to? Uh, is it agape love? Is it, what, what level of love? Is it phile, which is a relationship that, that a parent has with a child, or, or a brotherly relationship? I mean, what, what are we talking about? So in this particular letter, he's going to refer to his readers as children several times. So the interesting thing as we go through it is there's a little key to picking up on this. When he refers to this word, it'll be preceded by little, little children. And what he means is, when we get to these, is a little child is being referred to in these passages as a small newborn baby. Okay, picture a newborn baby for a moment. Small newborn baby. Not just physically newborn, although we can identify with that, but as you know, all throughout Scripture, Jesus said, unless one is born again, the illustration of our spiritual lives as it parallels our physical life, he uses over and over again to help us to identify a spiritual condition that we can't see. Frankly, I don't know how old some of you are spiritually, and I can almost figure out how old you are physically. And the more you work at it, the better you can hide that. 
But the truth of the matter is, spiritually, we don't know how old people are. So what he's saying is, he refers to newborn Christians, or people who have just come to know Jesus Christ. He refers to them as little children. Now let me just get something off my chest here. <clears throat> Can you imagine for a moment if we would teach new Christians this one principle and this one alone? This last few weeks, about three weeks, my sister and her husband, and they have a six-month-old, seven-month-old little baby, stayed with us, reminding me of this situation here, what we're going to talk about, how to parallel physical birth and physical life with what God tries to illustrate spiritually. How many of you have seen and been around a newborn baby? Okay, how many of you have seen and been around a newborn baby as it sits in its high chair while you're eating dinner, going like this? How many of you know what that newborn baby's doing? Uh, you know what? You know what? What's going on there, right? We know what's going on there. Okay, all right. I don't have to explain it then, because I got all kind of ways to explain it. If you want to know, ask me about it. Okay, so this little girl is sitting there doing that. <clears throat> now, should I be surprised that a seven-month-old baby does that? I wouldn't think so, right? I mean, how many of you are surprised when a little baby fills its pants? <laughs> takes a dump. Goes big potty. How many of you are surprised when a newborn baby does that? Let me, let me be serious for a second. How many of you are surprised by it? If you can be serious on this conversation. How many of you are surprised by that? Anybody surprised by it? Just anybody. Please, anybody. Anybody? Nobody. Nobody's surprised. I'm not surprised that you're not surprised because that's what newborn babies do, right? Now, when you go and change a newborn baby, how many of you are surprised that sometimes they even grab it and start trying to throw it around and stuff? <laughs> how many are surprised by that? Anybody surprised by that? Huh? No, no one's surprised by that. I'm not surprised you're not surprised by that because you shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what newborn babies do. That's their job description. That's what they do, right? That's all they do. They eat and they go to the bathroom. That's all they do. All right, now let's take this for a moment and let's apply something very serious. Give me an illustration. Daryl Strawberry is now playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Daryl Strawberry, six months ago, put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Daryl Strawberry has been very, very vocal about the fact that he's put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I pray for Daryl Strawberry on a regular basis. Because you know why? Because you know what Daryl Strawberry needs to know? Hey, Daryl, don't worry about it when you take a dump in your pants. All right? You're going to do it. It's as natural for you to do it as it is for a seven-month-old baby to do it. Daryl, you're six months old. Don't be surprised if you screw up. Now, what the rest of us idiots do is we say, oh, and Daryl Strawberry said he's a Christian. I saw him swear at that umpire the other day. I was at that baseball game. I saw him swear at him. I can't believe Christian will swear at an umpire. <laughs> he must not be a Christian. Well, you moron. I was like sitting there going, I can't believe a seven-month-old baby pooped right in his pants. Right in his pants. Didn't even go in the bathroom. Went right in his pants. I can't even believe it. It's your number. Didn't get in the pants. Went in the pants. Can't believe it. That's what we're like. That's what we're like. The worst thing you do to a new Christian is tell him, I can't believe you went to the bathroom in your pants. You should know better. 
What's wrong with you? You know what? Better check your faith. Make sure you're in the faith. Better pray that prayer again. Better do this again. Oh, come on. Man, that bugs me. That's one thing that bugs me because we screw up so many new Christians by not understanding this truth. You know what? That just fries me. They're going to make mistakes. A baby's going to go to the bathroom in its pants. As it gets older, you instruct it. Hey, here's what we're going to work on. We're going to work on being potty trained. You know what's so wonderful? Is that we sit around, we take a baby in, and the baby goes into the potty for the first time, and it points, and we all go, Look at that! Oh, that's so wonderful! Look at that! And that baby gets encouraged. You know what the baby does next time? I'm going to go in the potty, man. This is great, man. They give me a standing ovation. They're doing the wave in the living room and stuff. This is great. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to go to the bathroom. Because they love it when I do that. That's what I'm going to do. Man, why can't we do the same thing? Take a new Christian. They say, listen, okay, okay, one your pants, that's all right. But here's what you need to do. And we're going to teach you, we're going to instruct you, and you're going to start going to the potty. And then when they do go to the potty, and they, and they have to make tough decisions. Do I go and do this, or do I do this? When they do what's right before God, then we go, that's right. See, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Not because it's you, but because you're new. Because Jesus Christ lives within you and he wants to live his life through you. You can do that. Man, God help us. If nothing else, if you don't learn anything else this morning, then when you go out and you find a new Christian, you realize that they're going to take a dump in their shorts. And instead of wiping their nose in it, you help them clean it up. And then you point them in the right direction. Then you give them encouragement. Then you give them instruction. Then you teach them the things of God. And then when they start going to the potty, you clap and you, you shout and you give them a standing ovation and you give them the wave and you pat them on the back and you keep on walking with them. Man, I can't believe it. I feel better now. Man, you know, it's like, it's like you know, we, we just need more encouragement. Think how much easier it would be if we just encourage one another. It's great. Now, if you're 20 years old in the Lord and you're taking a dump in your shorts, ew, that's gross. <laughs> and you got to stop doing it because you know better. That's a whole different situation. He also used this word of tekna, which is, he, is uh, a phrase that's used as children of God. Children of God are, are referring to a child who needs discipline. So as we get to these particular passages and we remember what we're talking about, it's referring to a child who needs discipline. So he's taking us through the growth process. He's saying, look, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you become a newborn baby. You're new. You're new spiritually. And you're going to make mistakes, but that's all right because you need to be instructed. You need to be taught the things of God. And as you grow older and now you know the things of God and you're making choices, that's where the discipline comes in. Take a four or five-year-old and all of a sudden they decide to start taking dumps in their shorts again. Then you're going to discipline them or her. Why? Because they know better. Because for two or three years they've been doing it right and now they've gotten lazy. Now they don't want to come in from playing and you know, it's all these kind of things. Well, then you start to discipline them. Why? Because they made a deliberate choice to do that which was wrong. That's different. They know better. Discipline kicks in. That's the growth process. Then he also goes up and uses a third word that just has to do with children and it's used to contrast a child who has grown with one who hasn't grown. There's a maturity level. There's a spiritual maturity that's there and the growth process takes place. Physically, we grow. Spiritually, we have the same process. The wonderful news is that it doesn't take some of us 12 years to grow spiritually as it does physically. 
Some people can grow in a year more than others have grown in 20 years. That's a wonderful thing about being available and being obedient to what God wants to do in a person's life. So as we go through it, we see that he referred to them as children, and that will become important as we go through, and through this study. And the last thing he refers to them as, he refers to them as fathers and young men. So the recipients of this letter were referred to as fathers and young men. 1 John 2, 13 and 14, he says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you dear children because you have known the father. And I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So as we go through this letter, see a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is going to be a study for new Christians. No, it's not. It's going to be a study for new Christians. It's a great study. In fact, I think it's probably the the first book that any new Christian should study. But it's a great study for those who have known Christ longer and are dealing with others who are growing in their walk with Christ. It's also referred to those of us who are, quote, a little more mature as fathers and as young men. And uh, that refers generically, of course, to you ladies as well. And it's referring to the fact that, you know what, there is a point of growth where now we can just talk man to man. I can sit down with you as my son and I can talk to you as, as, a, as a man and not as a boy. I can just level with you. And that's the process that he goes through. But I can't tell my five-year-old the same things that I talk to my 16-year-old about. Not ready for it. But eventually, she will be if I'm doing what's right to bring her to that point. So as we go through this, that's what we see. So this book has plenty to say to those of us who are uh, feeling we're a little more grounded than others. And he gives us five reasons that he wrote the letter. Five key reasons, or better yet, maybe you'd ask, well, why should I come back here and why should I study this? Well, the five reasons that he lays out, he lays out quite simply. But the first one is, he writes it to stimulate a fullness of joy. He writes this letter so that there will be some joy or a fullness of joy. And in fact, he makes it very clear. He goes, we write this to make our joy complete. I'm writing to you so that you will have joy in your life. You ever wonder why so many Christians are unhappy, miserable, kind of discouraging people to be around? I mean, that's amazing to me. I don't know what the deal is sometimes. I look around, I see Christians who are like depressed and suicidal and have no hope and everything's this and that. And you go, well, what in the world? What are you thinking? So he says, you know what? For those of you who are in that stage, I'm writing this to you so that there'll be a fullness of joy in your life. So that there will be some joy that's there. And he says that, and he goes through and says, that's why I'm writing this to you. When we know and understand the word of God, look at the example that John the Baptist gives us in John 3, 29. See, to understand this, understand in context, John the Baptist had a tremendous following of people that followed him everywhere. He was baptizing thousands in the river, Jordan, and there was people coming from all over the place. He had a large congregation. We want to put it in today's terms, he had a big church. And you know what happened? He lost it. He lost his big church. Why? Because everyone left him and started following Jesus. He lost his congregation overnight. Big church, big building program, everything was rolling for him. Jesus came along, they all started following him. He was stuck with this big building and stuff. He was pretty depressed about it. No, he wasn't. Look what he said. He said in John 3, 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Man, that joy is mine. And now it's complete. What was he saying? He said, I, I was, I've been waiting for God's promises to come to fruition. I was staying up here at the altar with this good-looking bride. 
and I'm the best man. And man, she's looking fine. And then, boy, it really bummed me out because then the groom came and thought he was going to marry this chick. I could have been really discouraged about it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? But then I remembered, ah, I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man. Oh, that's right. Come on up. And he stepped aside. That's how ridiculous it is sometimes for us who think that anything other than the fact that God's program will be fulfilled. You ought to just be glad to be part of it. But the problem is most of us don't know it because we haven't been instructed and we haven't learned. So the only way that we understand that is we have to know the promises of God. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. See, what Jesus wants to do is tell us stuff so that we can identify what he wants to say so that we can have joy when it comes to fruition. He says, look, the world's going to hate you. When it does, rejoice about the fact that it does. As we're instructed in the Word of God and we know more about God's programs, we can have genuine joy in our life because we know God's in control. God is sovereign. He's doing what He said He's going to do. And it's fun because we're part of it. There's another reason a lot of us are struggling, and that's the second reason that He wrote the book. And that was the fact that uh, we don't have any joy in our life because there's sin in our life. You can't have joy in your life if there's sin in your life. It's impossible. You never knew the difference before, before you came to know Christ. But now, as a Christian, one who Christ lives within, we are convicted by His Spirit of sin in our life. So we can't do the same things we used to do without it really bothering us that we're doing it. When I first accepted Christ, the first time I swore afterwards, it bothered me. I never, it never bothered me in my life to swear. I didn't know how to talk without swearing. And then it was like the first thing I said, I went, oh... Oh, that really bothers me. Why? It never bothered you before. And then you have all these stupid conversations. You think them with yourself. But now you know that we're the Spirit of God. It lives within you saying, Hey, man, you know, that's, that's a thing to do. What? I mean, that's a thing to do. I mean, I don't hear it, but you know it because you feel it. You sense it. You know you're guilty of what you just did. So all of a sudden, you can't do the things you used to do. And you know what? And then you do it. And then you feel real bad about it. And then you're called conviction. And then you have guilt about it. And then you don't have any joy because you're doing it. And it really messes up your sin life. Think about it. It's amazing. But that's what he said. He goes, you know what? Man, I, you know why I'm writing this? Look at 1 John 2, 1. He says, I'm writing this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Because if you're sinning, you're not going to have any joy in your life. Someone's going to start asking some questions, some tough questions. Why do I not have any joy in my life as a Christian? And then you pray this prayer. Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, if there's any sin in my life, you just let me know what it is. Man, you ever pray that prayer? Get ready to start writing them down. They're coming at you. And you know what's so funny is? You don't even have to pray because you already know it. Isn't that true? It's like, oh, Lord, you know, tell me, what am I about to do wrong? <laughs> and you already know it is. So what are you bothering for? You already know it. And if you do it, I guarantee you, you know what? You're not going to have any joy. And the funny thing is it starts out kind of as a gray area. It's a gray area. It's a little compromise, and that compromise ends up leading into uh, embezzlement fraud, theft, 20 years behind bars. Starts out just as, a, you know, just one drink, ends up being two, three, four, ends up being vehicular manslaughter. Starts out as, you know, maybe just a lust or, you know, still enjoying pornography and watching the movie and, and you know, reading the magazines for their articles. And, uh, you know, it ends up in maybe rape or fornication or adultery. That's, see, that's why it starts out. And see, and the problem is that sin 
will destroy your life. 1 John 3, 7 and 9, it says, Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. doesn't say no one born of God will sin, make a mistake, blow it every now and then, take a dump in their shorts. doesn't say that at all. But what it says is that, hey, if you're born of God, you won't continue to live in sin. You won't continue doing what you know God doesn't want you to do. It's impossible to do because you can't live with the conviction any longer. You're going to have to repent. It says because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. You can't go on sinning and you can't enjoy it anymore. And as the joy is taken from your life, that's why David said, you know what, Lord? Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. He didn't say, give me my salvation back. He said, you know what, man, we used to walk close and it used to be fun. My relationship with you used to be great. And now I have no joy in my life and I'm really struggling in my walk and I need to get that joy back. And so basically what he says is, you know what? Then stop sinning. I just finished reading a book. Don Baker wrote a book. It's called The God of Second Chances. It's it's, uh, subtitled The Remaking of Moses, which I thought was interesting. And I also find it interesting that Moses, David, and Paul all had one problem that was common to the three of them, and that was that they were all murderers. And this particular session was, was being taught to a group of singles, and the guy who was teaching it got a note back that said this, It's sure a good thing Moses was, was only a murderer and not divorced, or he never would have been able to serve the Lord in the future. Isn't that sad? What's the point? The point is, you know what? All of us have made mistakes. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But see, when we come to accept Jesus Christ, he pays the price for that sin. Some of us in here are feeling disqualified from serving God in the future because of what we've done in our past. But the point is, as I read this and I see what God has done through Moses and through David and through Paul, is that none of us are disqualified from future service when there's a repentant heart of what we've done in the past a wonderful thought so he writes this to stimulate victory over sin he's writing this to say hey you know what if you want to serve god in the future then stop doing what you're doing that's not right today and repent and turn from it and god will use you and do great things through you not that you'll do great things through for god but he'll do great things through you he just wants to use us as a vehicle to accomplish his purposes and so he wrote it to stimulate victory over sin he also wrote it to stimulate love for one another he wrote it to stimulate one for love for one another it's just not for all people but it's for christians first john three eleven. this is a message you heard from the being that we should love one another what he's saying is that christians should love one another frankly i can love non-christians a lot easier than some christians that i know i need to be here to learn how to love some of you because non-christians have an excuse Christians don't. That's what's hard for me to understand sometimes about people I run into when we go over the same thing over and over and over and over again. Christians don't have an excuse. Non-Christians do. I can put up with a lot of stuff non-Christians do. doesn't bother me at all. I just look at them and say, hey, they sin because they're sinners. That's all right. That's their job description. But Christians, we need to learn how to love one another. And this book will teach us to do that. If you're having a problem loving other Christians, you probably want to study this book. Also, to stimulate an awareness of false teaching. I wish I had more time. I don't. But I'll tell you this. Man, I can't wait to get to this particular session. 
because there is so much garbage going on out there today. If you're the kind of person that everything sounds good to you, you need to come back. <laughs> okay, let's just leave it at that. If everything sounds good, you need to be here because John didn't fancy dance around it. He just said, that's false teaching, that's a false teacher. That's false teaching, he's a false teacher. That's wrong, that's right. But isn't that judgmental? Yes, it is. But that's all right. And uh, especially today, everybody's truth is right. If my truth conflicts with Wheeler's truth, that's okay. As long as we believe it's the truth. How stupid can we get? So this book will identify false teaching. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. I can't wait to get into this because there's more movies and books and junk out on TV that have to do with, uh, what's the latest one, Defending Your Life? You know, is that the latest one there? You know, Ghost, oh, popular, making $300 million a year, talking about the afterlife, spirit channeling, all this kind of stuff. There is more of this junk going on now than ever before. We need to identify what is true. Oh, but I believe in Jesus. Yeah, what Jesus do you believe in? Well, I believe Jesus is the archangel. Oh, is that right? Well, that's not in the Bible, Jesus. Well, I believe God wants me to be happy. He does want you to be happy. Oh, great. Well, good. Is that why you're going to leave your husband? Yeah, that's why. Oh, good. Okay, but what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, what Jesus do you believe in? I believe Jesus was a prophet. He was a good guy. Oh, yeah, do you believe he's the son of God who, who came to earth and, and took on human flesh and died on the cross and shed his blood and raised from the dead? Do you believe that his, sin, that, that, that his death for sin is all that you need to believe in? Or do you have to work your way to heaven? Oh, we've got to do some good works. Well, that's not what the Bible says. See, every question and every issue that comes up should be immediately followed by this statement on your part. Really? But what does the Bible say about that? But what does the Bible say? Because the only way that you and I will ever discern truth from error is to say, but what does the Bible say? Show me the passage. Show me the verses. Let's get into it and find out. Is that really what the Bible says? Does God really want you to be happy and be, and be disobedient? Or does God really want you to be obedient? And that will lead to joy. What does it say? See, we don't know. Everything sounds good. If everything sounds good, please come back. And then the last thing is to also stimulate an assurance of eternal life. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we'll talk about that. That you may know that you have eternal life. You know that will steal that. You know what will steal the assurance from a new Christian's heart? The fact that you begin to doubt their salvation every time they take a dump in their shorts. It will steal the joy right out of their relationship with the Lord. They're struggling. They're growing. They're learning. And one thing that they need to be assured of throughout the whole process is, you know what? There's nothing you'll ever do that'll separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ because there's nothing that you've ever done to earn it. You can't lose something that you were given that you didn't earn and that was given to you by anything that you would do. So the point that he makes is, I'm writing this to you so that you know that you have eternal life. Man, I'll tell you what, when I make mistakes, it's a wonderful thing to know that I've got a God who will forgive me and never will my relationship with Him from an eternal standpoint be jeopardized because of something stupid that I may do in this growing process that we call the Christian life. We need to be able to encourage others around us to do the same thing. So that's why he wrote this, and um, just kind of in a quick review, he wrote it to stimulate... A fullness of joy. If you don't have any joy in your life, you want to study it. He re- wrote it to stimulate a victory over sin. If you've got sin in your life, you're not going to have joy in your life. He wrote it to stimulate a love for one another. If you're having problems loving other Christians, boy, you want to be here. 
He wrote also to help us to identify false teaching. And one of the greatest false teachings that are out there is now that you'll jeopardize your salvation by making a mistake. And the last thing is he writes to assure us of our salvation. Boy, this is going to be some good stuff, and I'd encourage you to be here. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for just the, as cl- the clear word that we get. We thank you, number one, for a transformed life. We look at the Apostle John. We see the good work that you've done through him, and we're just amazed that a man who was called the Son of Thunder, who was impulsive, who was arrogant, who was self-assured and confident, that could be so transformed by your love. We thank you for a sensitivity. We thank you for the honesty that we find is always in your word. And I just pray that um, we will be here to go through this, to study it, to look at each of the things that you want us to learn. But more than anything, I just pray right now that as uh, maybe more mature Christians, that we would have a forbearing spirit, that we would be as tolerant toward new Christians as we are to a newborn babe that doesn't know how to go to potty yet. God, help us. As, As simple as that sounds, boy, but that simple truth will set us free. Lord, we also pray that we understand that you said the truth will set us free and that Jesus Christ is the truth, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come unto the Father but through him. We thank you that you didn't say a truth can set us free, but the truth, and that's Jesus Christ in human flesh who died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead to prove he was who he claimed to be, Lord God Almighty. And we thank you that salvation is all of you, that all we simply need to do is put our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ upon that cross. We thank you we don't earn it. We thank you as a result that it can never be taken away by any foolish thing that we may do. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that will help us to see the way that you want us to go. And we just ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.